Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Research at OU Graduate School podcast. My name is Jana McFarlane-Horn and I am a PhD student with the School of Social Policy and Criminology here at the Open University. This episode is sponsored by the OU Graduate School, but all views are my own. I'm here to talk to you about my research into podcasts and how they overlap with criminology. So if you like podcasts and are a true crime junkie just like myself, stay tuned. I'm going to cover what my research is about in more detail and then discuss the background of some key criminological concepts and some cool corporate crime cases. Then we'll briefly cover the topic of crime media research, especially crime documentaries and podcasts, and we'll finish with some insights into true crime podcasting. I'm hoping to raise your awareness of corporate crime and share some of my knowledge about corporate crime and researching podcasts. So let's get to it. I started my OU journey last year as a fully funded student, which was challenging to say the least. My background is fully criminological. I have studied criminology for close to seven years now and all throughout my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees. Ever since the first essay I wrote, I knew exactly what interested me the most and what I wanted to spend my life studying, which was to study corporate and white collar crime. After trying and failing to be satisfied in what I always thought was my dream job, I knew academia was my calling, though I also really wanted to share my knowledge with the non-academic audience, which was motivated by none of my friends knowing enough about corporate crime. This way, I could make information more accessible to the layman, as it were. This passion turned into reaching out to a potential supervisor and developing research about corporate crime, or crime committed by individuals within corporations, or by the corporation itself, which is usually committed to increase their own profitability. I myself am a firm believer that corporate crime is the worst type of criminality, with the most grievous consequences, and criminology should do so much more to fight the social injustice. This point is absolutely going to sidetrack the theme, but just this year, energy giants like BP and Shell are recording their highest bonuses, meanwhile also paying close to zero tax. They are also charging people crazy money to heat up their home and have access to warm water. It is absolutely baffling to me that we just let them get away with it and let them push our boundaries of what is acceptable. My OU journey has been smooth and marvellous so far. The staff I have dealt with have all been lovely and helpful, always doing their best to resolve any struggles I may have. My supervisors are so accommodating and patient with me. I ask a lot of questions and they never fail to answer them promptly. My department is just as kind too, and so brilliant at helping me on my journey of becoming a successful early career academic. Anyway, back to the main theme, my PhD research. I also knew I wanted to research existing data, having previously done a dissertation on media portrayals of corporate crime. I wanted to branch out into a new modern field, which is when the full picture clicked. I was going to research alternative data sources that I usually use to inform my knowledge about corporate crime documentaries and podcasts. This is how my research is looking at the moment. I have three corporate crime cases and I want to explore what discourses are being used in podcasts and documentaries covering these three cases. My data collection, or transcribing episodes and episodes of data, hasn't started yet, but I suspect that there may be certain differences in their portrayals, as podcasts can be truly independent from any mass media organisations and are free to cover themes the way they want, rather than sticking to some preconceived notions of what the journalistic standards are and what actually sells newspapers. I don't know what exactly I'll find on the rest of my PhD journey. 
Next year will be filled with collecting and analyzing data, and last year is most likely going to be spent writing my thesis up. All in all, I hope to bring some innovative thoughts into my field, and I hope I get to make an impact with my work. To take a step back and provide more background to those of you who may not be familiar with criminology, which also includes a lot of my friends and family who still can wrap their heads around what I do. I am not a coroner, I'm not a criminal lawyer, nor am I a forensic scientist or a prison officer. I don't go to crime scenes, I don't work for the police, and I do not solve crimes. I sit behind my desk and philosophize about the four W's and one H. What, who, where, when, and how is crime committed? Criminology tries to answer these questions and evaluate research findings, apply them to governmental policy, and participate in the criminal justice system. So it's much more theory-driven than practical, though that might just be my personal experience as a UK-based researcher who is studying topics that rarely get control within the criminal justice system. Criminology has so many branches. When someone says crime, you probably think murder, and if you consume any true crime, you may be able to tell me the names of the most prolific serial killers. Though, criminology covers much more than that, as murder is one of the least prevalent crimes out there. Other mainstream topics may include prison systems, interpersonal violence, courts, or police services. My area of interest is more on the outskirts of criminology, along with topics of international crimes, white-collar crimes, state crimes, war crimes, or environmental crimes. These topics are so under-researched and neglected within the discipline that it barely gets covered in the mainstream section of criminology. Ask any criminologist how many corporate crime modules they know about at their university, and they'll probably give you a very low number, if they even do any specific corporate crime modules. I have just recently been to a criminological conference, the biggest one in the UK, and there was only one talk on corporate crime, and not very much on any crimes of international character, frauds, or white-collar crime. Much of the focus of the scholars was prison systems, police, interpersonal violence, and other topics surrounding these areas. Though this is also connected to the complexity and ambiguity of these crimes, as well as their unclear legal status. Corporate crime includes those types of wrongdoing that are straightforwardly illegal and criminal, such as corporate manslaughter, but also cases that are not necessarily illegal, but unquestionably harmful, like the working conditions in some garment factories in developing countries, which I shall discuss later. This causes so many disagreements in academia, which are then reflected in the wider public perceptions. Academics often disagree what corporate crimes are, what we should and shouldn't include under the umbrella, and even what to call this type of offending. Labels include corporate harm, corporate crime, corporate wrongdoing, occupational crime, and many others. The very birth of corporate crime was somewhat confusing. An American sociologist, Edwin Sutherland, came up with the term white-collar crime to cover offences committed by people of respectable status during the course of their occupation. Though Sutherland described individual crimes, he backed up his theory with data of offending corporations rather than individual offenders. He also widened the net and claimed that corporate crimes may not necessarily always fall under criminal law, which upset traditional criminologists, and they rejected his claim and fought against his theories. 
Today we recognize his introduction of corporate crime within the field, and we understand that crimes are socially constructed. That is, the government writes criminal law statutes and decides what behaviors to criminalize. Essentially, this makes crime an artificial concept defined within the borders of one country. What may be criminal in the UK is not the same elsewhere, and vice versa. Many harmful actions in developing countries are not crimes there, but they would inevitably contribute to criminality in the UK. A lot of corporate crime falls into this area. Many crimes committed by corporations are not yet criminalised in many countries, despite being harmful. As corporations are transnational and span across different countries, they have the ability to cherry-pick jurisdictions based on how tough the countries are on corporate criminality, thereby escaping the label of criminal offending. It's important to realise that there are no official statistics on corporate crime. The government turns a blind eye to this type of offending. Just this year in the UK, two of the new Prime Minister candidates both offer varying cuts to corporate taxes, and they both offer to decrease the level of control over corporations. Getting a little philosophical here, but corporations are essentially left to police themselves, as government enforcement is against the goal of the country, which is to accumulate more capital. So the overlap of corporate state interests makes these crimes more hidden. Corporate offenders rarely think of their participation in corporate crimes as criminal. The distance between the offender and the victim is so far removed in terms of time, space and decision-making process. Yet, it's important to recognise that most of the decisions undertaken by corporations prior to discovering the crime that has taken place all contribute to the conditions that created the crime in the first place. This may be better understood with an example that I will provide to you um, in the next section, but one last thing I'll note here is about corporate profits. The sole duty of the corporation is to maximise profits for its shareholders. It isn't to be socially conscious or to be ethical. All decisions must be undertaken with profit maximization in mind, meaning that when there are grey areas, and there are so many of them we could write all 50 shades of grey of corporate criminality, the corporations are most likely going to take the route of least cost. Let's look at a few examples next to give you some context to these abstract terms. So I've chosen three cases to cover in my PhD thesis, some of which you may be familiar with. The first case is environmental, and the most popular one with the Hollywood movie from 2016, Deepwater Horizon. This was a case of a BP-owned oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico that exploded in April 2010. The explosion killed 11 rig workers, and it was followed by the worst oil spill in the history, which spilled 134 million gallons of oil, or if you like the metric system or are European like myself, over 610 million litres of oil that was spilling for over three months. It destroyed marine ecosystems, it caused tourism and real estate in the area, the fishing industry also suffered. This then resulted in many people losing their livelihood and having to deal with mental health and substance abuse issues. Without getting too technical, the investigation uncovered that the reason the oil spilled was because BP cut corners to save cost and time on the rig. Some jobs were not done properly, some safety precautions failed, 
and some workers were not listened to when they raised questions about it. In fact, every single official cause of the spill was found to be compromised on due to cost. Don't get me wrong, BP did pay for their crimes. The fine they received was sizable, their reputation was tarnished for a few months after the spill, but was this deterrent enough? Absolutely not. BP is still thriving, with record profits and people at the top being paid over £10 million bonuses each year. And we still see their petrol station on every corner. This is a great example of how punishment for corporate crime does not fit the crime, as this was not even BP's first offence. There were two more instances of an oil spill in Alaska and a Texas refinery explosion that BP was involved in prior to 2010. And guess what? The main cause contributing to both of these crimes was cost-cutting practice, which is surely not a coincidence. Another case I decided to include was a bit of a different take. It is a financial crime committed by Barclays and other major banks from 2005 to 2012. Without getting into copious technical detail about the financial markets, which I do not know that much about, the banks were accused of manipulating a rate of interest that is called LIBOR. LIBOR is essentially a benchmark rate, so several banks submitted several rates and then they worked out the average for the day. The average LIBOR for the day is then used as a base rate for a lot of products on a variable rate, such as mortgages or loans or investments. So by manipulating LIBOR um, resulted in many businesses, people and local governments who had loans and variable rates to lose money. The issue here is that the manipulation was not illegal at the time it happened. It was not independently overseen by the government or the regulators. The submissions of LIBOR rates were not based on any data either. The banks were essentially left to do whatever they wanted. The government knew of this behaviour and they warned the banks to be honest, but surprise, the banks were not. The banks argued that they wanted to stabilise financial markets during the financial crash of 2008, which is a corporate crime in and of its own, but let's not even get into it as we would be here for hours. Though if you are interested, I do recommend you watch the true crime documentary called Inside Job if you want to know more. I think it's still available on the UK Netflix. Anyway, the banks have then paid fines and traders were sent to prison, though this was very problematic. In a BBC podcast by Andy Verity, the traders explained that their manipulation was very minimal compared to the manipulation done by the banks. Some traders argued that it was such a common practice that they would probably have gotten into trouble if they hadn't done it. The only consequence for the bank was the change of the CEO, who still received his bonuses for a few years after he got fired in, inver in inverted commas, as he was not formally made redundant. The scapegoat here was the low-level junior traders, some of whom went to prison when LIBOR manipulation was made illegal several years after they engaged in the behaviour. Similar to the BP case, Barclays is still thriving and we still bank with them. Though there were some positive changes and reforms in these areas, such as phasing LIBOR out of the market, so no more manipulating a fake rate based on no data. The serious fraud office dropped investigation after being able to scapegoat individual traders and hand out some sentences. 
Though many people that have lost money as a result of LIBOR do not feel like any justice was served in the case. My third case was a bit more complex than the first two. It is a case of Rana Plaza, a garment factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh, that collapsed in 2013, killing over 1,100 people and injuring further 2,500. The factory was subcontracted to produce clothes for brands like Primark, Walmart, Benetton or Mango. The day before the collapse, there was a news broadcast showing cracks in the building, but the factory workers were ordered to come to work anyway, under the threat of losing a month's pay otherwise. At the same time, other businesses in the building, such as restaurants and retail shops, were being evacuated. The factory was housed on top on the top floors of a building, which were built without a proper planning permission. The building was also built on wetland, and it was not built for the purpose of being a factory with heavy machinery, but a space for shops, offices, and other businesses. Unsurprisingly, the building collapsed and a disaster occurred. The industrial incident was not the first of its kind in the area. The workers are forced to work in such horrendous conditions and they are very likely to get injured or killed. If you ever looked into the ethical considerations, or lack thereof, of fast fashion, you will understand that the locals are not given any other choices for employment but to work in factories without a proper pay and with no health and safety protections. The worst thing here is that none of the international corporations were held responsible or reprimanded for their decision to outsource their labour into countries where, with dubious labour standards. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't a Primark managed factory, I know, but this is also such a widespread problem of the fast fashion industry. Corporations could, and absolutely should, either oversee their whole production line or then, at the very, very least, have contracts that prevent these things from happening. But, and you may know by now what I'm going to say, it would be much more expensive to do so, and it would go against the profit maximization mantra of corporate ethos. There are hundreds of factories that are not overseen by any independent bodies, basically being left to do as they see fit. A little side fact here, But fast fashion is also the worst pollutant and creates the biggest environmental footprint amongst industries, but they have no environmental targets to meet like the automobile corporations. The fate of Rana Plaza is still being decided and criminal trials for the factory owner and engineers are still pending. But there is absolutely no justice for the victims when the main culprit, the Western Corporation, is never going to be held accountable for allowing this to happen in the first place. This is also a prime example of what I mentioned earlier, where corporations are able to cherry-pick, so to speak, um, which jurisdiction they want to move their work to or outsource their work for. So in this case, um, corporations have picked a developing country which do not have many you know, labor laws or high standards for work and for the environment. So um, just so you know how theory interacts with practice. These are the three main cases I focus on in my research in more depth. Though overall, there are too many to count. 
Some of these that you may know about are the Grenfell Tower fire in London in 2017, the Fort Pinto gas tank explosions, the Enron financial corporate crime, and then Union Carbide Bhopal gas leak in India, and many, many others in any industry you can think of. I have recently also watched a Netflix documentary on the case of Boeing 737 MAX called Downfall, the case against Boeing. To provide you a short summary, Boeing compromised on standards and failed to provide appropriate training for pilots when they introduced a new feature into their jets. This resulted in two major commercial plane crashes, which killed almost 350 people. Another set of cases I must mention here, as it is honestly mind-bogging that it actually happened, are exploding vehicles. Fort Pinto was the main case, though there were many other brands that engaged in the same behaviour. Ford discovered a fault in the gas tanks of Pintos that were exploding during the course of driving on the roads. They killed 27 people officially, though some estimates are as high as 500. The investigation uncovered that Ford knew about the fault and they conducted a cost-benefit analysis to to see whether it was feasible to recall and replace the faulty vehicles or get sued and deal with the financial consequences of it. It transpired that Ford had assigned a price tag on human life, which was $200,000, and evaluated this number against how much it would cost to replace and fix each vehicle that was sold. Though the price of the repair was $11 for a vehicle, so, so many of them were sold that it was cheaper to let people die than to fix the problem in the first place. I mean... Literally letting people die because it was cheaper than fixing their cars, which is just absolutely shocking. I could sit here for hours listing one example after another with any type of victimization you can think of. The main commonality across many of these cases is that 1. The conditions and the corporate environment ethos induces corporate criminality. 2. These crimes are rarely punished, and if they are, the punishment does not fit the crime. And three, even if there is some sort of punishment, it has absolutely zero effect on the corporation long term. Some call this corporations are too big to fail and too big to jail, and I am inclined to agree. Now that we have clarified corporate crime a little bit, let's move on to a more pleasant topic of crime documentaries and podcasts. This is connected to the question of where do we get our crime knowledge from? Not many of us have direct experience with crime, so we have to form our opinion from what is being reported by others. The first place we look for crime topics would probably be news outlets, be it written or broadcasted. There has been so much research into crime media, and perhaps unsurprisingly, corporate crime rarely gets covered. Even if it does, it is masked under the synonym of problem, issue, incident, or mistake rather than negligence and criminality. Research in this area consistently proves that media, often corporations themselves, are biased in their reporting of crime in general, let alone corporate crime. I am not here to discuss crime media exactly, though I have previously researched it extensively, so I will move on to the main topic here, true crime media. It feels like there has been an explosion of true crime genre in the past few decades, Starting with TV shows like Forensic Files in the 90s, which reenact real crimes. 
Then there are true crime documentaries and documentary series on TV and streaming platforms like Making a Murder on Netflix. And then the last category, I would say, would probably be true crime podcasts. True crime is dominated by serial murderers and the most graphic crimes. Netflix alone has countless documentaries on Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, the Yorkshire Ripper, Dennis Nielsen or John Wayne Gacy. Podcasts discuss murder so often that you would think that there's a potential killer around every corner waiting for you to take a wrong turn. I understand that appeal. I am a fan of true crime documentaries myself. I feel like it's my duty to acquire this knowledge and get more educated on the topic as it's the primary data source for my research. But one needs to be very careful as to how we interpret the findings from such sources. Who doesn't love a little whodunit investigation, preferably with some added sense of humour and insights into the criminal mind of the offender? We are so morbidly curious to solve the puzzle of human psyche and what drives individuals to commit such heinous crimes. Research estimates that more than 50% of households now listen to podcasts weekly, and given that the predominant category is true crime, there is an abundance of true crime podcasts to choose from. The whole true crime podcast revolution started in 2014 with Serial, which was a journalist-led podcast about the case of Adnan Syed, who is currently in prison for the murder of Heyman Lee. There are many controversies surrounding the case, and the end makes you feel very conflicted and confused in a good way. It helps that the production value of the podcast is exceptional. I would highly recommend you give it a listen if true crime is what interests you. As expected, most mainstream true crime podcasts cover murders. Criminal, They Walk Among Us or Crime Junkie are some of the examples of the sort of most popular podcasts in the area. I mean, some podcasts are even fully murder themed, like My Favourite Murder. The explosion of true crime podcasting could be either great for the discipline of criminology or it could be the complete opposite. True crime podcasting could help break some of the mainstream stereotypes unfounded by science, though research in the area is conflicting. Some researchers claim true crime podcasts reinforce criminal stereotypes by trivialising serial murder, normalising stranger danger, and putting emphasis on security measures like locking your doors or getting CCTV and panic rooms. Or carrying pepper spray, I've heard that as well, if you're a woman especially. Some researchers also found that podcast hosts sometimes place too much emphasis on victim blaming, so you'd hear podcasters discuss this potential victim that was walking in the darkness at 4am through a park that was not very well lit. Now, it may sound trivial to you, but within criminology, this is not something that the discipline does, and this is not something that you would want to hear as a victim. It is not your fault that you got attacked at 4am and you were wearing a skirt and you shouldn't expect that. Who would expect that? You don't expect violence. You try to expect the best in people, right? So I think that was one of the key issues in the area, which is why research is really, really conflicting. Although I think it might be a little different for areas of corporate crime that are much more complex and much more intertwined with power and the state and the government. Other researchers believe that podcasts could be justice-serving devices 
where neglected victims can feel seen and understood. It is also claimed that, based on their length and freedom from journalistic frames and standards, podcasts could actually be perfect for shedding light on more complex cases that can be placed into a wider context. For instance, though the research on corporate crime podcasts is non-existent, which I am trying to challenge, podcasts about corporate crimes I have listened to had really good potential to go really deep into why into the why of corporate criminality. I have listened to a few episodes of a podcast called You're Wrong About, and I was pleasantly surprised to hear how well they covered some corporate crime cases like Enron, the financial crash of 2008, and the Fort Pinto explosions. Another advantage is that podcasts can use simple language to communicate complex ideas to a non-academic audience, and they can be much more accessible and expressive than academic research. There are no paywalls on some podcasting apps, such as Apple Podcasts, and podcasters may make themselves much more easily understood. There are also no limits as to what podcasts can and cannot do. A well-recognized corporate crime scholar called Greg Barak came up with the term newsmaking criminology, and this is something I am trying to achieve with this episode also. I am here as a criminologist, that wants to enlighten you about the world of corporate crime and true crime in a manner that is well understood, and I really hope I have achieved that in this episode. Overall, researchers agree that podcasts are extremely rich data sources worthy academic exploration, especially given how popular they are becoming and how uh, how widespread they are. Yet, we should be really careful in their interpretation and maybe not take all of their advice into heart unless they tell you not to trust corporations, as that should be the key lesson you take from this episode. In fact, if you want to take anything from this podcast episode, let it be the following three points. Stranger Danger is not real, despite what some true crime podcasters want to tell you. More crimes get committed in the suites than in the streets. And corporations control most of our lives and we should fight against corporate power any chance we get. In case you wanted to hear more about my work, I have been working on different projects. I am currently in the process of writing an article about the framing of three corporate crime cases in online quality press, namely The Guardian, The Independent and The Telegraph. I did my research back in 2020. The results were as expected for me, but maybe a bit more interesting to you. Mainstream media treat corporate crimes like accidents and disasters, meaning that they tend to eliminate the involvement of corporations. Most often, the blame is either on the government and the lack of stricter regulations, or the individuals who actually pulled the trigger, so to speak. I analyzed the case of the Volkswagen emission manipulations, the LIBOR case I discussed, and the Grenfell Tower fire. The main conclusion was that even quality press the most critical mainstream outlets out there cannot and does not encompass the full extent of corporate crime and they fail to place corporate wrongdoing into the wider socioeconomic context. My other work has involved writing a blog for the British Society of Criminology that talks about Amazon. One of their warehouses was hit by a tornado in Kentucky in December 2021. Yet, no media outlet is pointing a finger on Amazon and calling out their participation in the crime. Amazon forced their warehouse workers to come into work in extreme weather 
and this isn't the first time this has happened, even though a state of emergency was announced by the governor. Expectedly, the tornado hit the area in which the warehouse was, and a wall collapsed, killing six people in the process. My article talks about the interconnectedness of corporations and media, and some of the reasons why media decides to report a story in a certain way. I have also been interviewed by the Corporate Crime Reporter, a weekly newspaper that comes out in the US about the state of corporate crime field in July, so I'll leave you a link if you want to check that out. You can also take my true crime podcast recommendations, You're Wrong About, Serial, and my upcoming corporate crime podcast that will hopefully be out by winter 2022. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening until the end, if you did make it all this way. I tried to provide you an easy introduction into criminology and corporate crime, and more importantly, a little bit about how we research podcasts in criminology. This is such an unexplored area, and as podcasts are rising in popularity, hopefully academia will follow with investing more research into this medium. If you want to find out more, follow me on Twitter at J-A-N-A-M-H underscore underscore or ping me an email which you can find out by either visiting my OU page or just doing a quick Google search. My email and social media is always open to discuss anything around the topics of corporate crime, so much so that my friends must be sick of me by now. I'll leave you with a question. Next time you think about crime, ask yourself why do we fear being kidnapped by a stranger more than we fear being sold a product that may kill us?